Season 2 of Hard to Believe is a proud part of the Cage Club Podcast Network. You can find this and other great shows at cageclub.me. The complete Season 1 archive is also available at hardtobelieve.me. This show is now available on YouTube. Just search Hard to Believe Podcast. You can email me at john at cageclub.me. We're on Facebook at Hard to Believe Podcast. And you can follow me on Twitter at ProbablyRealJB. That's P-R-O-B-A-B-L-Y-R-E-A-L-J-B. The show is written and produced by me. Okay, confession time. If you know anything about me, you know that I'm not one to embrace conspiracy theories. In fact, I spend way more time than your average person on this show and in my work as a teacher actively dismantling and debunking conspiracy theories. So I hope I've earned the benefit of the doubt when I say what I'm about to say. I don't believe that the obscure William of Stratford is the author of the body of work that we attribute to William Shakespeare. And further, I do believe, in fact, I'm convinced, that the author of that work was Edward de Vere, the 17th Earl of Oxford. To be clear, this isn't a hunch or a suspicion. I recently outed myself as an Oxfordian on Twitter, and someone replied with a link to a five-minute YouTube video about how this is all nonsense and how Oxfordians are elitists. Thanks, I've heard all that before. No, I'm an actual member of the Shakespeare Oxford Fellowship. I've read and consumed enormous amounts of scholarship on this, and this is the result of more than 20 years of serious reflection and investigation of the authorship question. And I came to it after an enormous amount of resistance and deference to the Stratfordian narrative. For years and years, I took Shakespeare biographers at their word when they insisted that, of course, William Shakespeare of Stratford was the author. Until I came to realize that every biography of perhaps the most famous person in Western history is full of conjecture and guesswork and outright fantasy. How is this possible? The more I learned about De Vere, the more I read and watched Shakespeare with the assumption of him as the author, a funny thing happened. These works that have lived with me since I read Romeo and Juliet in ninth grade finally started making sense. They evolved from great works of English literature to living, breathing, passionate works of timeless, very personal art. Look, if you're not convinced, I understand, but I'm going to present you with a very simple challenge. Look at the Wikipedia articles for William Shakespeare, the most famous author ever, and Edward de Vere, a noble who remains a relatively obscure historical figure. Never mind that De Vere's entry is so much longer, even if you factor in that an enormous amount of the entry for William Shakespeare has nothing to do with his life and everything to do with his plays. Just read the entry on De Vere with everything you know about the works of Shakespeare in the background and see what happens. Look, it sucks to be in the minority. I never wanted to be so utterly convinced of a position that brings about so much scorn and derision. It doesn't help that the most famous depiction of the Oxfordian position to date, the 2011 film Anonymous, casts Oxfordian theory as a grand conspiracy, with William of Stratford a craven fraud, which is not at all the mainstream Oxfordian view. But I am utterly convinced, and as such, I'm in the company of other tinfoil hat crackpots, such as Orson Welles, David McCullough, Sigmund Freud, Harry Blackman and John Paul Stevens, Sir Roger Penrose, Jeremy Irons, Michael York, Mark Rylance, Sir Derek Jacobi, and beloved international treasure, Keanu Reeves. And I want to be clear about the mainstream Oxfordian view. We aren't elitists. We don't believe Shakespeare was a fraud. We don't believe he was illiterate, and we don't believe that Shakespeare wasn't Shakespeare. 
we believe William Shakespeare and one William Shakespeare of Stratford, about whom we know almost nothing, were not the same person, and that no grand conspiracy theory need be invoked to explain that misattribution. We believe that William Shakespeare was Edward de Vere, the 17th Earl of Oxford. Full stop. My guest today is Stephen Sable. Stephen is an accomplished actor and director and a committed Oxfordian who hosts the official podcast of the Shakespeare Oxford Fellowship, Don't Quill the Messenger. I'm Oxfordian John Brooks, and this is Hard to Believe. So Stephen Sable, welcome to Hard to Believe. Thanks for having me, John. I'm excited to talk about some things that are indeed hard to believe, but nonetheless true. Uh, thank you for throwing my show's title in there. Um, why don't you introduce yourself a little bit um, and talk a little bit about your uh, your life and profession and uh, the show that you that you host? Well, currently, I make my living as a communication specialist, but I have a long history in the theater. I, uh, dating back for now almost 40 years, I started as a child actor. And um, throughout my history as a theater artist, I had my own Shakespeare Festival for nine seasons. I ran my own theater in the LA Arts District and the North Hollywood Arts District for a combined total of eight years. Uh, before moving my family to Southern Oregon for a more quiet and uh, peaceful life, uh, mainly for our kids to grow up in a better environment. Um, I came to the Shakespeare authorship question approximately, mm, I'd say 30 years ago was when it was first introduced to me, but I didn't really dive into it fully until about 12 years ago and learned about the Shakespeare Oxford Fellowship, joined that organization, and then became the host of a podcast series that they sponsor called Don't Quill the Messenger uh, that, that surrounds this question of Shakespeare authorship. You say you came to it about 30 years ago. Uh, that makes me think that your origin story with this question is probably the same as most people's, which is the infamous frontline special. Is, is that a fair assessment? No, that's not. Actually, that's not what happened. Um, I have seen that one and, and, I, and I love it. It's great. Um, and it's really hard to find. I think you can YouTube it or Vimeo it now. But um, it was actually first introduced to me by the father of a school friend that uh, I had from high school. And we, I happened to be at their home and we were watching, we were watching Hamlet. We were watching Kevin Klein's production of Hamlet. It's a, a modern dress one that was created in the, in the 80s, I believe. Mm -hmm. And we were watching that production. And at the end of the production, we were commenting about the performances and, and, and the various aspects of the production. And the, this dad of this friend of mine turned to me and said, well, you know, Shakespeare wasn't really Shakespeare. And I said, what do you mean by that? And he said, well, <laughs> the, the guy from Stratford didn't actually write the plays. They were really written by Christopher Marlowe. 
And I said, really? And he said, oh, yeah. He said, you know, Marlowe's death was staged and faked. And he went into exile in Italy where he wrote all the plays and then sent them back to uh, England. And I said, oh, I, I really, that's curious. I'd really like to look into that. And he introduced me to a book called, oh, I tend to forget the exact title, The, the Murder." Let's see here. Um, the Murder of the Man Who Was Shakespeare was the name of the book. And I, um, that was where I first like came to this, you know, Shakespeare authorship mystery. And he said, oh, and you have to read the sonnets because all of the clues are in the sonnets. And he said, in fact, if you really want to know what happened, read the sonnets in reverse order. And I went, wow, okay. So I did that. And what I discovered was that there absolutely was some sort of secret in the sonnets, that the sonnets were definitely surrounding a very interesting relationship between at least three individuals. Uh, and that's when I first learned about things like the dark lady and the fair youth and the poet and um, discovered that there was something to this. Well, the further I researched and the deeper I got into it, I discovered very quickly that it wasn't Christopher Marlowe at all, but that it was actually Edward de Vere, the 17th Earl of Oxford. Yeah, I. so I, the reason I bring up the Frontline special is because um, I, I think I was in uh, probably ninth grade and it would have been 1994 or something like that. And um, I, had a, I had an English teacher who showed us that special uh and then when i was in uh 10th or 11th grade we're studying shakespeare uh i had another english teacher who talked about the sonnets and the sort of mystery surrounding the sonnets uh and the uh, sort of insinuation of sort of homoeroticism right that's that's in the sonnets um and you know i think this is probably a pretty common story for oxfordians um like, like you and me um that it, it, it was like people kind of flirted with it and then sort of abandoned it, right? So I, I was sort of, I had all these influences of saying, um, there's something to this, maybe, right? But like, then I have all of these academics saying, pish posh, right? That's not, that's not, that's a conspiracy theory. It's all absurd. Of course, uh, William Shakespeare wrote, wrote the plays um, and the sonnets and everything else. And I, I, there's this kind of like intellectual bullying. And, and the reason I bring this up is because you say there's sort of a, a lag period, right, between when you're first introduced to it um, and then when you sort of took it all in and, and, and brought it on board. You know, and I read like, I read Shapiro's book and I read Peter Aykroyd's book um, about Shakespeare. And I was like, oh, yeah, no, it seems <laughs> like they, they seem to know what they're talking about. You're laughing, right? But it was, it was you know, what really put, pushed me over the fence was um, Tom Rainier, who I know you, who I know you knew. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I was I, I sort of got into I, I watched a couple of his lectures and then I, I started emailing with him. And um, and I was like, I don't know why I kind of came back to this idea. Uh, but what he points out about all of those books, right, is the the use of the term. We we, we must expect or it, it's, it is probable that or like so on and so forth, because we know nothing about this William Shakespeare guy. It is the only area. You know, it, it strikes me, John, that one of the craziest things, one of the only areas of research where that kind of conjecture is allowed. Right. <laughs> and it's the only biography 
it's the only biography of any historical person where that kind of conjecture is allowed and where biographers are allowed to just kind of make stuff up as they go along. Um, one, one of the members of the, of the Shakespeare Oxford Fellowship, who's also a member of the De Vere Society in England, he calls it fictionography. That's a great term. And uh, <laughs> it's a great term, right? Because it, it really does apply to these guys who have made a living off of making up stories about this butcher's son from Stratford. Right. Right. Um, and, and then of course you have, I mean, so, so I, you've talked recently in your show about this and I, and I, I this is the thing that I find sort of um, frustrating, right. When I, when I'm talking to scholars uh, you know, even my, my, my colleagues who are English teachers who um, love Shakespeare whenever I sort of bring up the secret that I'm an Oxfordian. Um, you know, there, there's there's that you're a conspiracy theorist thing. And one of the things that you talked about in a recent episode of your show was why would I want that, <laughs> right? Like, I would rather believe that, that Shakespeare was Shakespeare would be so much easier. But like, I look at all the data and the evidence and I can't believe that. And, and it just doesn't add up, right? Um, so I, I wonder, because you are far more uh, invested in Shakespeare as, as, a, as you know, professionally than I am. Um, what is that like? And, 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 and have you, have, has there been any, uh, any softening um, among your colleagues about the, the dirty secret that, that you don't buy the, the Shakespeare story? Well, you know, so here's the thing. I, I soft sell it. I make sure, you know, be, being communications. Oh, right. Yeah. Being a communication specialist, uh, a spin doctor, as it were, um, I soft sell it um, however I can. And that works extremely well with other theater artists, uh, especially actors. So I've produced more than 60 Shakespearean productions and uh, covered 23 titles, plus a staged reading of Venus and Adonis. So I have a pretty good grasp of the canon. Some plays more than others, obviously. Some titles I haven't been able to get to yet. I do hope to do all 37 of them someday before I die. So I have, you know, 13 more titles to go. Um, mostly the history plays and, of course, some of the obscure plays and the, and the, and the ones that are known as problem plays are, are among a, a couple of those. But when I'm working on a Shakespeare piece, when I'm working with any piece of theater, I commonly will refer to the author of the play. Um, you know, whether it's Shakespeare or Mamet, it doesn't matter. Um, you sometimes when you're giving direction to actors, you'll say, well, the author is saying this here, or the author gives this character these lines here for this reason. And, and you're helping the actors to understand the motivation of the character through the intent of the playwright. And so I do the same thing when I'm working on a Shakespeare piece and I'll say, well, you know, the author put this in here because of this and I'll give them some historical context that helps them. You know, for instance, let's use uh, one of the easiest ones, A Midsummer Night's Dream, right? So I'll say, well, the reason why Bottom is calling the fairies Monsieur, Monsieur as he pronounces it because he's obviously terrible at French, but the reason why he's calling them Monsieur is because that character is a parody of the French Duke of Alençon, who was being considered for marriage by Queen Elizabeth. 
And he is being poked fun at because no one in England at the time wanted the queen to marry this French duke, this French Catholic duke. And so Midsummer Night's Dream has a lot of allegory in it that involves that marriage proposal. So now the actors go, oh, well, that makes so much more sense to me now. And I can play the scene better, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What they don't ask is, how did this provincial playwright from Stratford get away with poking fun at the queen's betrothed and not getting his head chopped off for it? Well, the answer is because he wasn't a provincial guy at all. He was a member of court, a high-ranking member of court. In fact, the second oldest title in all of England sands the queen herself, the 17th Earl of Oxford. Um, you and I are talking as two people who already agree on this premise. Um, and and uh, yeah, I think we've, we've taken very similar uh, paths to get there, right? Mm -hmm. um, kind of dragging your feet a little bit, but <laughs> like, not wanting to uh, to be a conspiracy theorist. Um, although I think it's actually the opposite, right? I think people who believe in, in the Shakespeare, the, the Shakespeare narrative or the conspiracy theorists. But let's back up for people who are not initiated into this. And uh, I wonder if you could talk about what you think is the... Um, is the smoking gun or at least let's start with this like what put you over the edge because for me it was the knowledge element right it was the you know i, I had people tell me for a long time that that you know you, you can just have innate talent and you can just be really good at writing and i was like oh okay yeah sure right and i think that's what most of the um stratfordians don't want to let go of they don't want to let go of that of that myth of just natural god-given talent and that's understandable but for me it was especially when tom would lay out the falconry right? and like the knowledge of law and the, the 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 intimate knowledge of very specific places in italy and you know the sort of things that there's just no reasonable way you know that 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 William that William uh, Shakespeare would 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 know about, and the narrative that he learned it all in a bar, <laughs> like the, that he hung out with smart people in bars, and like that's where he got this knowledge. The Mermaid Tavern of <laughs> Eternal Knowledge. So to to kind of complete, kind of piggyback on the last narrative. So you know, throughout a rehearsal process, as I give these little nuggets to actors through the rehearsal process that help them to develop their characters. Eventually, they will come to me and say, how do you know all of this, right? Like, how do you know that Shakespeare intended this in this scene and that this character is a parody of this member of court and that this scene is a reflection on a moment in his life? I've never seen that anywhere, never read that anywhere in the things that I've read about Shakespeare. And that's when the door cracks open and slams open for me to say, well, that's because you're not reading about the real Shakespeare. And if you read about the real Shakespeare, it all makes sense. And so it's not one thing. It's the collection of overwhelming evidence. And most specifically, it's the autobiographical nature of so many of the plays and characters where this man is pouring his the details of his actual life into the page. And that's what all writers do. Let me, let me give the um, the classic sort of academic Stratfordian counter to that, which is um, 
there is nothing that says that a writer has to write autobiographically, that um, the, the Elizabethan literature was not autobiographical um, by nature, and that uh, this is something that the Oxfordians are merely trying to see where it doesn't exist. Um, how do you counter that? I say, look at the man's life and create an overlay and place it over the complete works and now argue, make the same argument. Because I can point to a specific incident in the Earl of Oxford's life in every single play and an account and personal people that he knew in every single play. And no Stratfordian can make those connections to the man from Stratford whatsoever. It's impossible to do. What if he just learned everything about the Earl of Oxford at a bar? (laughs) (laughs) And obviously he had a very strong personal relationship with the Earl of Southampton as well, which is why (laughs) he chose to dedicate his first two epic poems to the man. Yeah, okay, let's talk about Southampton, because this is obviously a very big part of the Oxfordian picture, right? And how Southampton fits into it um, is a matter of debate among Oxfordians. It is. I'm sure most people listening who who don't know anything about any of this stuff um, have no idea who Southampton is uh, and why that particular person matters. Um, can you give the brief kind of elevator pitch about Southampton? Well, the, the most important thing to understand right off the bat is the very first time we see the name Willie, I am shake hyphen spear. Mm-hmm. And I, I refer to it that way because Willie's were poets It was a slang term for poets. And there's a reason for that. And it's because of um, in um, Greek mythology, uh, the willow branch is the branch that the great poet takes with him into Hades, not the laurel leaf, but the willow branch. And so um, willies, willows and willies are poets. So the name Willie, I am, if you parse that out, I am Willie, I am a poet. Poet, I am, shake hyphen spear. Well, Pallas Athena is the spear shaker of the Greeks, right? She's also the patron of poets. And so he's making a play on words from Greek mythology to create this pseudonym, not unlike. Mark Twain, for instance, who we all know now was Samuel Clements, right? And look at what he did. He made a funny name out of a boat, riverboat term, right? To Mark Twain was to uh, drop knots in the water and judge the depth of the river so that you could pass through an area and not hit a sand barge, right? So That's the first thing that you need to understand. Then when you realize that that name first came out on this poem, Venus and Adonis, which at the time was like soft porn in Elizabethan England. And that's why it goes through multiple printings because they couldn't print it fast enough. It was flying off the shelves. Everybody wanted to get their hands on this because it's this great story of the seduction of a young man by an older woman. And it's dedicated to this young Earl, who is very young at the time. Not long after that, a second poem comes out. The second time we see the name Willie, I am Shakespeare. In that poem is called The Rape of Lucrece. 
And it's a far darker, more dramatic poem that that also falls up upon, um, you know, Greek history slash mythology. And it's the rape of Lucrece by the Tarquin. And um, that poem's also dedicated to the Earl of Southampton. So here we have these two epic poems. First time we ever see this, this pseudonym author name being dedicated to this same guy. And so immediately we have a connection between the name William Shakespeare and the Earl of Southampton in print that cannot be denied. What we don't have is any evidence whatsoever that William Shakespeare of Stratford ever knew the Earl of Southampton, ever was in the same room as the Earl of Southampton, was ever in the same city as the Earl of Southampton. For that matter, there's no proof of it. Um, but what we do know is that the Earl of Oxford had a very close, intimate relationship with the Earl of Southampton. The nature of that relationship is what is the cause for major debate among Stratfordians. But the point being is the Earl of Southampton is directly connected to the Earl of Oxford. He is not in any way connected to William of Stratford. The name William Shakespeare is a beautifully crafted pseudonym with specific literary reference that obviously somebody who wanted to write under an assumed name would create and find funny at having created this wonderful, clever name. Before we go on, I, I, I want to just uh, pull apart another um, kind of Stratfordian argument that I hear a lot, which is th there seems to be almost a kind of a Stratford of the Gaps uh, approach that is taken sometimes where uh, William of Stratford becomes so small uh, a part of the writing of Shakespeare's plays in order to explain him writing Shakespeare's plays that, that it's almost comical to me. Uh, there, one of the arguments seems to be that a lot of the plays were written by committee, um, that, that Marlowe participated in writing them, that Bacon participated in writing them, um, and that the sonnets were written by a uh, one individual person, but there's room to believe the plays were not, right? And so um, this is sort of one of the ways of kind of massaging the apparent ineptitude and illiteracy of the actor William Shakespeare. Um, so, so obviously I know that, you know, your conclusion is that that's not the case. Um, could there be any merit, right? Is there any ground at all to say that there's um, any of the plays that have uh, a committee approach to writing them? Absolutely. And, and in fact, um, that is becoming a more popular, more prevalent belief. Um, that there was a committee of writers involved, at least in some of the works, perhaps even in the development of characters or storylines that then were um, put together and then corrected and edited and refined by the Earl of Oxford. Many names have been mentioned as potential contributors, including names like Anthony Munday, uh, John Lilly, um, um, Chapman, Ford, uh, Marlowe. There've been there've been a lot of names and a lot of of numbers that have been um, thrown out there uh, as to which plays and how many plays. But here's something that's important to note: if that is what we believe to be so, that there was sort of this um, cobble of writers, right? 
this uh, star chamber of writers, uh, Algonquin Club, as it were. Uh, it, the Algonquin Club was uh, back in the, the 20s, and it was a group of mm-hmm. literary minds mm-hmm. in New York that would gather together some, some of the top you know, literary minds of the day, including journalists and novelists. So let's say that there was this sort of like the Hollywood movie um, studio scenario of old where they would have a team of writers employed they'd set them all in a room together and say we need a star vehicle for clark gable come up with something you know what i mean um so let's say that that's what shakespeare's plays were or or some of them or many of them let's say even particularly the history plays which tend to be the best propaganda ever written to strengthen a monarch in the history of literature um it's known for a fact that Edward de Vere had such a group of, of writers under his employ for a length of time, including some of those names I just mentioned. So if we start to lean towards the group theory, that only strengthens the claim for Edward de Vere. And it would demonstrate then that he was like the editor-in-chief of this group of writers because he employed them provided them a place to work and uh, kept them under his wing, perhaps even tutoring them in their writings um, throughout that time period that they were all working together. It's also quite possible that some of the plays were finished or perfected or corrected or cobbled together from various different manuscripts prior to the publishing of the first folio by whomever had the first folio in his possession or her possession prior to those public that publication that monstrous very very expensive publication that is right. dedicated to two earls the earl of pembroke and the earl of montgomery one of them is edward de vere's son-in-law the other was almost his son-in-law to one of his other daughters so there's just another giant connection to Oxford that you don't have to Stratford. So your your conclusion is that um, the plays may very well have been, and probably were, um, and I agree with you actually, that they, they probably were, um, you know, not all 100% the work of De Vere, um, that, uh, you know, he, he wrote the bulk of them and there was contributions, right, and edit, edits and, and rewrites and so on and so forth. And, and that all makes a lot of sense to me. Um, but the sonnets are where you really find the, um, the style and the sort of nature of Shakespeare and that the sonnets are 100% to be, or do you think that's right? There are some people who think that the sonnets might be a series of letters back and forth between one or two or three people Um, and that that those that that could be edward de vere the earl of southampton and queen elizabeth or at the very minimum edward de vere and queen elizabeth discussing the earl of southampton Um, and there are a lot of theories about the sonnets the two major theories about the sonnets follow one of two lines either that Edward de Vere and the Earl of Southampton were homosexual lovers. And they also shared a female lover, making them bisexual. And, it, and it's all a, a very erotic, strange love triangle. 
That's one theory um, that's very prevalent. And it has, you know, different variations to it, but that's the crux. That's the core of that one. And then there's the other theory that the Earl of Oxford is truly the Earl of Southampton's father, that Queen Elizabeth is his mother, and that the sonnets are all about trying to encourage the Earl of Southampton to have a child, to get the Queen to acknowledge the Earl of Southampton as her son, because the most important thing at the time while the sonnets was being written, were being written is the question of the succession of the throne. And at that time, the queen had no heir. She refused to name a succession, a successor. She refused to acknowledge that she had any children if she had had secret children. She will not be a mother, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly right. Um, and, and when William Cecil wrote that uh, in a very famous letter, he wrote to his son, when he said, she will not be a mother, I believe what he was saying is she will not agree to admit that she is a mother. She will not uh, allow the public to know that she has given birth to a child. Um, okay. So again, for the kind of layman um, in, in the audience here, who hear a name like Southampton and they're like, isn't that a place? Like, <laughs> who is this guy you keep talking about? Um, who Southampton really is, is a very big part, of course, of the Oxfordian narrative. Um, and, and, you know, you're right. And you've talked about it before that um, really the only two things that could possibly fit are um, two men who are in love and also bisexual or whatever, or this sort of um, father-son relationship that is a secret and is encoded um, inside of these, these, these poems as letters. Uh, but who is this guy Southampton that we keep talking about? Um, what's, what's his official biography and what are some of these sort of uh, theories as to the real biography of who Southampton really is? Well, one of the hardest things about the Shakespeare authorship question, I think, is, is also one of the hardest things about Elizabethan history. And, and any study of Elizabethan history. For that matter, it's probably even difficult to study any part of English history because of this very reason, and that is that everyone has multiple names. Right. <laughs> you know, yeah. they, have, they, have, they have their name, they have the name they were given, their surname, and then their title. And oftentimes in England, people are referred to by their title as their name instead of their name. So for instance, we refer to the Earl of Oxford. Many people just say Oxford, just they'll shorthand it and call it, call him Oxford instead of saying he is Edward de Vere, 17th Earl of Oxford. They'll just say Oxford. But sometimes they'll say de Vere uh, and people can get confused. Well, wait a minute. Is it de Vere? Is it Oxford? No, they're all the same guy. So with the Earl of Southampton, his real name is Henry Rosley. And there are variations of the pronunciation. I, I tend to think that it, at the time it was pronounced Rosley. Mm -hmm. And I believe that when we see things like in Romeo and Juliet, a rose by any other name would smell as sweet, that it's a play on his name. That he is a rose, that he is part of the, the rose metaphors that occur in the Shakespearean canon. Um, so Henry Rosely, third Earl of Southampton, be, uh, according to the historical record is the son of the second Earl of Southampton, 
um, a very new earldom, as you can see, because there's only been two before him, and he's number three. Not unlike, you know, completely unlike Oxford, who's number seventeen, right? Gaining all the way back to William the Conqueror, right? But you know, the Queen and other monarchs were capable of creating new earldoms and new baronies. You know, William Cecil, Lord Burley was just William Cecil, a commoner, until the Queen bestowed upon him the title Lord Burley and made him a baron in order to elevate him to nobility so that the Earl of Oxford would stop refusing to marry his daughter because she was a commoner. You know, one of his complaints to the Queen about that marriage was, I don't want to marry her. She's a commoner. She's beneath me. So what does the Queen do? Elevates her father to nobility and says, now what's your argument? <laughs> if you think about it, it's really funny. Mm-hmm. P.S. Mm-hmm. That happens in All's Well That Ends Well. That very mm-hmm. scenario <laughs> occurs in All's Well That Ends Well. The hero, so, pseudo hero, he's not a very redeeming guy. Bertram refuses to marry Helena. It's a king in that story rather than a queen. And the king says, oh, well, I'm going to elevate her to nobility. Now what? Now she's just as good as you. Now what? what what's your argument against her now? So again, you know, there you go, a giant autobiographical moment in Oxford's life that plays out in a play called All's Well That Ends Well, that is basically his confession saying, it all worked out in the end. I'm glad I married her. I shouldn't have fought against marrying her. And there are many of the plays that are an apology to his wife for the horrible way he treated her through his life. Yeah. So your, your, um, where you fall on this debate, uh, the he's the illegitimate son of Elizabeth and Devere, which I know sounds to anybody kind of, you know, any kind of outsider sounds crazy, right? And 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 is the is the most conspiracy theory sounding um, element of the Oxfordian um, construct, but I get the impression that that's the one that you favor. Is that is that right? So there are a lot of Oxfordians who believe that this theory that the Earl of Southampton is the illegitimate son of the Earl of Oxford and Queen Elizabeth is like the worst taboo subject that we could ever talk about or ever touch on. That it brands us, as you say, as crazy conspiracy theorists. You know, I've been accused of I've been I've been accused of being a flat earther. Um, Some Oxfordians, not me. I've, I've never had anyone. I've never had anyone throw this one at me, but some Oxfordians have been outwardly accused of being Holocaust deniers, um, which is ludicrous because, of course, both of those things um, are completely apples and to oranges when you talk about uh, literary mystery and historical figures, right? Um, that, that we know truly existed, that we know truly had relationships with each other. Well, all we're trying to do is define what the relationship was. And if the definition of that relationship helps us understand how and why a body of work could get disenfranchised from its creator, then I think what we have is a very uh, cohesive narrative. And I believe that this theory that Oxford was the father of Southampton, that the queen is the mother, is the 
storyline that explains everything the best. It explains why there would be all of this secrecy. It explains why there would be this conspiracy at that time to keep it a secret and to prevent him from having his real name on the works. It would explain why there was such an urgency at the time, why the sonnets were written and why they're so important. It would explain the nature of many of the plays and the messages that are in them that are directed specifically to the queen. Um, I think that that's the storyline that it, that answers the most questions for me. I tend to agree. And um, I want to bring back the narrative thing in a second about exactly like the, the struggle that Oxfordians have with getting from point A to point Z. And that, you know, the further we get into this story and into the connection to, to Shakespeare, right, the more kind of unresolved um, um, that that has become. Uh, but I'm going to, again, for w- one more time, give the, the Stratfordians um, the, the stage here, so to speak, and the argument or the criticism, and I think, you know, Shapiro brought this up, um, which is to say that, you know, Shakespeare talks of a, of a shipwreck in Bohemia, and how could a uh, well-traveled man who understands geography possibly... Um, conclude that there could be a shipwreck in Bohemia, right? It's, 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 it's geographically impossible. Um, you know, my answer to that is, well, okay. So you're, <laughs> you're, you're, you're saying there's this one thing that is incongruous with this, with this, you know, person who knows everything about falconry and law, um, which you concede, uh, but, but somehow De Vere can't make mistakes. So like, it can't be De Vere because nobody who wrote these, these plays could make mistakes. Right. Um, it's it's I, it's absurd on the surface right, that that the argument from the fact that this person made a mistake proves that it's William Shakespeare right is is just an insane argument. Um, but how do you how do you counter that? Um, why would he make a mistake like that? Let's let's be let's assuming it's Devere. Um, why would he make geographical and historical mistakes as he occasionally seems to do? Well, there are there are some great scholars in the Shakespeare Oxford Fellowship who have, of course, devoted a lot of time to some of these Stratfordian arguments and picked them apart through their research, where they have demonstrated that these things are not a mistake. They are references to something different, or they're allegorical, or they're figurative, um, and that they're being used to make a point, which, P.S., writers tend to do uh, on occasion, you know, by the way, um, there really wasn't a clock in Julius Caesar that struck three while the conspirators were deciding they were going to kill Caesar the next day because <laughs> in ancient Rome, there weren't clocks. Right, that's true. <laughs> but yet Shakespeare in his play has um, Cassius and Brutus saying, oh, the, the clock hath struck three. The hour is late. We need to go. Everybody meet in the morning and, and know that you, what you're supposed to do. Now, how did that happen? How did a clock strike in ancient Rome? They had sundials. The first clock wasn't invented for you know <laughs> another thousand years. So yeah. um, sometimes it's put in there for a specific reason. The number three is a very specific number. It's a very ominous number. And it's why he inserts this chiming of three 
on the hour of the conspirators deciding that they are going to act and they're going to kill the foremost man of the world, right? Um, it's demonstrating that they are committing something that is sacrilege, that an anointed ruler is sacred. And it's an anti-conspiracy to kill a monarch play. So some of these things are messages to other people, not to us today. And a lot of our scholars have done a lot of research. That Bohemian Shipwreck, for one, you can find that. If you go to the Shakespeare Oxford Fellowship website and you type that in, you can find the research on that that explains what that reference really means. One of my favorite ones is, you know, people always say, oh, well, in Two Gentlemen of Verona, they talk about sailing from Milan. Milan is landlocked. You can't sail from Milan. Well, in the 16th century, you could take a barge from Milan to Venice along canalways that were very popular for wealthy people to travel upon for two reasons. One, it was smooth sailing, pardon the pun, <laughs> as opposed to loading things in wagons and having to go over bumpy roads by horse and carriage. You could load all your goods on a barge and a donkey or an ox would pull them along the canal while you got to sit there on the barge and relax and ride in comfort. It was also much safer to go by barge because bandits couldn't attack your carriage and coach from the road. And the roads were dangerous. P.S. Guess what happens in Two Gentlemen Verona? Oh, yeah. Bandits on the road. <laughs> because it was a dangerous way to travel. So right. we know that the Earl of Oxford traveled from Milan to Venice and went along those canals. That's the way he would have gone. By the PS, he was carrying a lot of luggage, a lot of very expensive luggage. <laughs> and you know how many carts? One giant barge could hold so much more gear than how many, how many different carts would he have had to hire to pull his gear? So whenever you could, you traveled by canal. Thus, sailing from Milan. Um, there's a great moment in uh, Taming of the Shrew where the suitors for Bianca are arguing about who can offer her the most. And the old man, Granio, who, who is this old, old codger, you know, he's the dottore. He's the, the old, you know, dirty, creepy old man who wants this young 15-year-old girl to be his wife. And he is throwing out all the things that he owns. And he says, I have an argosy that now lays in Marcellus Road. And people think, why would Shakespeare put a ship in the middle of a road? That doesn't make any sense at all. Well, I'm sorry, but in 16th century, roads were docks along these canals. And when he says it lays at Marcellus Road, he means it's docked there at that canal, that entry point. And that's what he's talking about. And so some of this stuff is, you know, the Stratfordians who go, oh, see, he put a ship in a road. That's a big mistake. Um, no, it's not. Not at all. Right. Um, one of the criticisms that we get a lot is that we're elitists, right? That we just refuse to accept that um, a scrappy nobody can pull himself up by his bootstraps and uh, write the greatest works of literature ever. Um, and, you know, so I'm going to tell you my 
<laughs> feeling about that and, and why I reject it. And um, I'd love to get your, I'm sure you've been told that too. I'd love to get your perspective. But, um, you know, to me as an educator, um, I take real offense to that because um, I know that you have to learn things in order to be able to do things. And I have, I've had students who are very gifted at writing, but they didn't teach themselves. Um, they're very gifted at um, philosophy, but they didn't teach themselves. Um, they, they've been able to uh, internalize it and, um, and, and develop it in themselves, but they need teachers and they need education. And that's why we have education. Uh, I, I, I get the sense, I get the feeling it's a great myth the idea of this like nobody from you know the the middle of nowhere in england um coming to london and and you know making it big is it feeds very heavily especially into the american psyche um that this is the sort of myth that we tell ourselves we want to keep that myth and i understand it uh but i think the opposite is true right i (laughs) i think it's the, the it's the it's the stratfordians who are the elitists who who um sort of say that there's nothing, there's no use in work and there's no use in, um, in, in education and practice. Right. And, and to me, that's elitism, not the other way around. The idea that you have to be born to write like this, um, and that you can just be born to write like this. And there's nothing, um, you know, that, that, that's going to make a Shakespeare. Um, and I, I think that's, that's fundamentally wrong. I'm sure you've been called an elitist by, you know, certain people who hang on to the, the Stratfordian um, model. How do you respond to that? It's a beautiful fairy tale, isn't it? To think yeah. that this, you know, country bumpkin from nowhere can rise up to become the greatest writer of, of all of English literature. It, it's a wonderful, beautiful fairy tale. And I understand why people want to uh, subscribe to that fairy tale. I understand why there is a fairy land that has been created in Stratford in England that celebrates that fairy tale. And it's, you know, it's, it's like Shakespeare land, you know, it's the Disneyland of literature there. And it's all based on that fairy tale. And it's a fairy tale place. It's all, oh, he might have lived here and he might have gone to school there. And he might have <laughs> chopped down this tree. He must have. And he, he might have and might have and might have and must have and might have, you know. And, and it's the same as, oh, look, this is Cinderella's castle. Um, you know, look, there's the log ride. So, you know, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of money to be made there, too, off of selling that fairy tale. But the bottom line is this. It's a combination of nature and nurture that breeds any success in anything. You look at, for instance, Benjamin Franklin, right? He was, I think, the seventh of 10 children, uh, maybe more, dirt poor. But his father saw in him this smarts, this intelligence, and made sure to make sacrifices to help him get an education. Mm-hmm. And then he became the great inventor and statesman and philosopher that he became, right? He was also a, an, a uh, you know, womanizing, lecherous, <laughs> you know, dirty old man who got kicked out of France and they wouldn't ever allow him back. So a lot of these geniuses also tend to have these same traits of being overindulgence in, in other areas as well, which is also true about the Earl of Oxford. Yeah. Um, here's another great one, though. Um, Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. If Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart had been born the son of a butcher rather than the son of a music teacher, do you think he would have gone on to become a virtuoso composer 
Or would he have gone on to become a virtuoso butcher? That's a great point. That's huge. Um, another one I like to use, and in fact, I, and I gave a presentation about this last October at the Shakespeare Oxford Fellowship online symposium in Napa. And that's available at the SOF YouTube channel too. And it's called uh, Mentors to Genius. And I laid out him, particularly Mozart, and all of the mentors that he had, not just his father, the music teacher, who was actually probably one of the least talented of the mentors that he had throughout his life that made him a great composer. I lay out the, here's, here's another awesome one, and, and it's uh, uh, Albert Einstein. <laughs> Albert Einstein grew up in a very poor family, right? Albert was poor. He had access to mentors who saw in him this genius and helped foster that. And it was through that that he was able to then gain admission to very expensive, very high-end schools and be able to then continue that education to become the genius physicist he, he became, right? So the same thing happens with the Earl of Oxford. He is recognized early on in his youth as being one of these virtuoso geniuses. And the mentors in his life see that, foster that, and create this great writer that we now know today as William Shakespeare. And so it's not elitist at all. Yeah, It's about having opportunity and the mixture of the great innate and latent talent and then the training and education that's required in order to achieve. If Edward de Vere had been born uh, in Stratford, the son of a farmer, he would never have become the great writer that he became. He would have been a brilliant farmer. He would have invented new... He would have invented new uh, irrigation or, <laughs> or planting uh, uh, skills or, you know, it, it, he would have put that genius to work somewhere else. You know what I mean? Yeah. No. And I, and I, again, I understand the, the power of the myth for sure. Um, but yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And, you know, it, it seems that the elitism really is in the fact that we don't afford people these educations that they, you know, deserve to have. The number of potential geniuses that we've let um, become whatever, right? Poppers, because we, you know, people don't get the same opportunities. When you look at the people who, look at Tiger Woods, right? like he didn't just learn to golf when he became. I, that was know, exactly where I was going to go. He didn't pop out of the womb and pick up a golf. <laughs> golf club and shoot a hole in one right. look how much time and energy his father put into training him to be the great golfer that he became look at the williams sisters right serena and venus williams mm -hmm. this is another such story um an, another great one is michael jackson right look at look at michael jackson look at the osmonds right um, you know, you could go on. The list goes on and on and on and on and on. And it, right. it required excellent and in sometimes, in some cases, in some of those particular cases we mentioned, probably almost torturous training right. to some degree. Yeah. And even, even I think the um, maybe the example that you might be able to pick up and draw some of a co you know, coherent argument for is someone like John Lennon, right? But even John Lennon, you know, still had a decent education. Um, he wasn't an especially good musician until he played music professionally for a long time. And, you know, none of his lyrics have 
complex analyses of law and falconry. (laughs) They're about like things that we all experience. So so there's really nothing to explain there, right? About when it comes to, when it comes to John Lennon. Um, And, and I also think there's an element here of like the Jesus story too, that that Shakespeare is sort of, people want Shakespeare to be sort of the, um, the Jesus of the English language, right? A guy who comes out of nowhere, who we can't find any biographical information about, right? Who's trying to find any sort of historicity is basically impossible. Um, but is nonetheless, you know, from the middle of nowhere, but goes on to become one of the most important figures in the history of the world. I, I you know, I, it, it strikes me that people, that's what people don't want to let go of. And, and I understand it. I, I, I don't, you know, I didn't love letting go of it either. Um, but I did love that the plays suddenly made so much more sense to me, that the, the sonnets made so much more sense to me, that these plays that I'd grown up reading and, you know, performing and whatever, um, that suddenly it was no longer just great work of fiction. It was, it had context and it had humanity that it never had before, right? And I, I think that is, once people swallow the Oxford red pill, <laughs> right that is what they get and and uh and that's what i want to sort of encourage people to to be open-minded about so i i love your jesus analogy and, and i like to take that for a second right so let's take your jesus analogy right here's the thing we don't have with william of stratford we don't have him at 12 years old sitting in the synagogue <laughs> teaching all the rabbis about the torah yeah but we do have jesus doing that Right. Right. Um, we do have Oxford at age 14 graduating from Cambridge. Right. So you see there. So I, I don't I don't need. So the Jesus analogy works for Oxford, but it doesn't work right. for Stratford. Right. That's a great point. Um, yeah. And I agree with you. I agree with you completely. One hundred percent that that people once people take once people learn about the life of this man, Edward de Vere, the 17th Earl of Oxford. And they, and they read about who he is and who he was. And then if they have any love for the works of Shakespeare at all, and they layer this man onto those works, they will have a much deeper love for the works, a much deeper understanding of the works. They will, their love for them will be renewed in ways they cannot even imagine until they learn about this guy. That was my experience, not only as somebody who loves history, but most specifically as a theater artist. The characters came to life for me in new ways. I, as a performer and a director, were, was able to interpret those roles in a much deeper way and in a way that I believe is more fulfilling to an audience who sees those performances as well. Um, he lived a, a painful, painful life in many, many ways, and it plays out in the text of so many of these plays. And it's for many of us who are dedicated to bringing this truth to light, it is that understanding that makes us so passionate about it because we see it as the great tragedy that it is that he has been stripped of this credit for his, for his work and his talent. And not only that, but his reputation practically destroyed and nearly erased from the record 
um, by the powers that wanted to silence him so badly and who did so. This is totalitarianism at its most extreme. <laughs> this is censor- censorship beyond all compare. And it is the one of the most horrific things that anyone could have ever done to an artist is what was done to this man during his life. And it's a trade I believe he was willing to make in order to save the life of his son. And being a father of three, I think that's a, one of the other reasons why I connect to the Southampton, the idea that Southampton is Edward de Vere's son is because I read those sonnets and I see a parental love there that is so deep and so strong. And I see a sacrifice made by a father in order to save his child from death. And um, that's another such a huge part of the compelling part of the story. It's really interesting that you say that because um, I didn't fully embrace this viewpoint um, until I became a father of three as well. Uh, <laughs> so sometime after my twin daughters were born um, that, that, you know, I, I, I don't even remember why I started going back to it, but that there's something nagging at me that I, that I wanted to explore this again and, and really answer it for myself once and for all. Um, but yeah, I, I agree as well that you see the parental um, element of the writing, especially in the sonnets, right when when you are a parent, um, and it, it it certainly played a played a role for me. Um, I have two more things that I want to ask you about before we go, and and, okay. and one of them is it's something that you were talking with um, with William Boyle about a few weeks ago. Uh, that is one of the. One of the tough things that, you know, we as Oxfordians uh, just don't have a uh, sort of consensus answer for, right? We've already talked about the, uh, what was the relationship uh, with with Southampton as being one of them. But the other one is, okay, then how did we get here? How did we get from Devere um, and and the, you know, sort of wild coincidence that there was a guy named William Shakespeare who was a, who was a part-time actor in, in, uh, London, um, and then the role that Ben Johnson plays in in all of this, um, and this is something that in my, one of my last correspondences uh, with Tom before he passed, I I, <laughs> I kind of put this on the table and I said, you know, what do you think, and and what what is that narrative? Um, how did we get from De Vere to Shakespeare to to this being the accepted historical sort of consensus that this dude with the goatee um, and the several different portraits that look nothing alike, uh, (laughs) this dude is the author of Shakespeare. And his answer to me was, I don't know. Um, And I want to know. And we're trying to figure it out. And there's a lot of debate and there's a lot lot of analysis about this. But he said, essentially, um, that if you want to take this on board, uh, if, if you want to embrace this viewpoint that's just something that you have to accept we, we we just don't know that final ingredient yet right um so so i i'd love for you to kind of talk about that first of all like if you have any ideas that you've that you've come across about how we got there um and, and the role of ben johnson um and if you think we're ever gonna get that answer that we can present to the world to say um here is how we came to this uh 
this mis- misconception? Obviously, that is a giant question, and it is one that a lot of people ask. It's one that a lot of people ask me almost immediately after I share with them that I'm an Oxfordian. Right. And and and, it, and it's not in, in many cases, it's not the skeptics. It's the ones who are really interested in this story. Right. Who who don't. Yeah. The ones that don't call me a flat earther. Yeah. Right. The ones who <laughs> yeah. are like, ooh, really? That's all interesting. Oh, I'd like to learn more. But but then how did this happen? Right. Um, and so there are obviously several scholars in our organization who are working hard on trying to piece this together. Bonner Miller Cutting has done some work on this and, and she has some theories that I think are um, very interesting and connect the dots between a lot of players throughout the ages who had an interest in keeping this secret a secret. Uh, I know that Roger Stripmatter is doing some major research right now into Ben Johnson and has some stuff he's going to be sharing very soon about Johnson's connection to it all and, and what part he played in it all. Um, I tend to subscribe to the theory that it's a coincidence that went wrong, that was then capitalized on by those who needed it and used it when they could. Um, I don't think we truly know what William of Shakespeare, what William Shakespeare of Stratford ever actually looked like. I think the Droshet engraving that we see in the first folio is a cartoon mm-hmm. and it is not meant to look like anyone particular. I don't believe it is meant to be a depiction of William from Stratford at all. I think all other images that have come about since then have been variations on that cartoon image. And I don't think we really know what the man looked like at all, quite honestly. Uh, we do know what Edward de Vere looked like. There, there are specific paintings and etchings and engravings of him that we can connect to, that we know exactly what he looked like. But we certainly, I don't think, know at all what William of Stratford even looked like. I do know that I think we can blame primarily the actor David Garrick for most of what has happened um, since his time uh, in the 1700s. He's the guy who created Stratford as a tourist attraction. He's the guy who went there and decided we're going to have a Shakespeare festival here, a Shakespeare Jubilee, he called it. And it was his effort to make money. It was, it was all a money-making scheme. They held it on the 152nd anniversary of Stratford's death, but said it was the 150th anniversary because that sounded better. So, I mean, the whole thing was immediately predicated on a lie, even on the dates, right? They didn't even produce one single play from the Shakespeare canon over the weekend of the festival. It got rained out and was a sloppy, muddy mess, and it was a horrible disaster. But it set the stage, literally, pun intended, for Stratford becoming this you know, monumental fairy tale land. And it was all part of a P.T. Barnum type of money-making scheme. And I think we can blame him a lot for everything that happened since then that's been propagated since. Um, but I think in many ways it was just a coincidence and there were people who capitalized on that coincidence once they discovered it to be true so last thing before we go let's let's uh since you and i both love shakespeare whoever it is uh, <laughs> um 
what is the best Shakespeare performance you have ever seen? Um, <laughs> a video, a video tank, a video DVD of me playing Hamlet. Oh, hush. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> um, I have had the, the pleasure of playing Hamlet. It was one of the great achievements of my acting uh, uh, career and, and history. I, I'm so thrilled that I got to play Hamlet. I'm, I'm too old to play Hamlet now. I'm glad <laughs> I got to play Hamlet when I did. One of the roles I won't ever get to play is Henry V, and that is something I will lament forever in my life. Mm. Um, but so like the best live production yeah. that I've ever seen or like the best film adaptation. Well, let's like, do both. Let's do both. We can, maybe, maybe we'll argue about this. Uh, let's do live first and let's do film after that. Um, I truly, without sounding like a, you know, a vainglorious bastard, um, truly some of the Shakespeare productions that I have produced and directed have been some of my favorite live performances but that's because they were done my way they were done the way i wanted them to be done right um and 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 with my interpretation and my oxfordian lens upon them as well so um you know that that's true but outside of the things that i've produced one of my great favorites was a production of pericles that i saw at the oregon shakespeare festival that was just beautiful. It, it was so well done. It's a very um, rarely produced play. It was extremely well done. The, the actor playing the lead was fantastic and truly went through the progression of the ages of Pericles that happened through the story. And it made me appreciate that play more so than I ever had before. And it made me want to someday produce and direct that play. So I would say that that was definitely one of my uh, key favorites. Um, on film, I think that, um, Branagh's Much Ado About Nothing is one of the best, um, Shakespeare films that, that is, that is out there. Um, I very partial to Franco Zeffirelli Mm -hmm. and all three of his major, major, uh, Shakespeare films, Romeo and Juliet, his Romeo and Juliet sets the tone for all other Shakespeare films that come after it. Yep. Um, Tammy of the Shrew is not as good as Romeo and Juliet. Um, there's a lot of actor baiting that goes on between Elizabeth Taylor and um, Richard Burton in that production. Um, but I also love his Hamlet. And I think that Mel Gibson delivers a magnificent performance in Zeffirelli's Hamlet. And a lot of people don't realize that it's Zeffirelli who is the director. They always say, you know, Mel Gibson's Hamlet, Mel Gibson's Hamlet. And because we know him as a director and actor, people assume he directed the film, but he did not. Zeffirelli directed that film. And I think it's a, it's a brilliant film, including some of the changes in the text and, and um, moving of scenes. I think it, it works extremely well. And I, I think it's one of the best. Uh, yeah. I think it's a really solid argument. I, um, I, I love Zeffirelli as well. I, you know, there's some criticism that he sort of plays it too down, down the middle uh, and doesn't sort of take the, the risks that you can take with film. Um, but it's so good. <laughs> I mean, his Romeo and Juliet is so good and his Hamlet is so good. Um, I, I definitely, I mean, Brand as Much Ado About Nothing is one of my favorite films of all time. And my wife just recently found and put on our watch list a production of Cymbeline that I did not know exists. And I'm oh. looking very forward to watching that. 
um, because that's a rare, that's a rare one. You want to talk about obscure Shakespeare play. <laughs> um, it's not very well written. So that I'm curious to see what they're going to do with it. It's really not, it's, you know, everybody gets a stinker in their list once in a while. And I think Cymbeline is probably our guy's like biggest stinker. That and, and Henry VIII. Henry VIII is also just terrible. And, and that was obviously written just to make the queen happy. And it's all full of pageantry and not much more than pageantry. Right. And the Oxfordian, the Oxfordian model helps explain why it's so bad. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which is, yes. I, I find that really interesting, right? Um, it's kind of universally understood as the, as the worst one, uh, especially of the history plays anyway. But um, yes. the other movie that I think is wonderful is uh, Looking for Richard, the, the one about Al Pacino um, putting together Richard III in, yes. uh, in New York Yes, City. great. Great film. Phenomenal movie. Um, what is the worst Shakespeare movie? Uh, that's like the absolute worst, I yeah. think, is probably Ethan Hawke's Hamlet. Yeah. Yeah, he's horrible. You know, another one that another one I really don't like is Brana's As You Like It. I don't think I've even seen that. It's yeah, it's uh it's set in, in it's it's a weird, like sort of a it's a weird kind of an Asian theme to it going on that doesn't really make sense. It's beautiful, you know, because Brana knows how to make a film and especially make a beautiful film. It's a gorgeous film. It's just the, the characters are not – it's it's also played too – the whole play is too much of melancholy. It's too Jake Weiss for me. And uh, and Kevin Klein plays Jake Weiss, and I love him, but I feel like it's one of his worst roles too. It, mm-hmm. it, yeah, that one's that one's really not good at all. That's a solid pick. I, you know, the 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 Ethan Hawke Hamlet thing. I the one thing I do kind of admire about it is that I I was at least sort of um, I don't know what the word is, but but in the in the late '90s when there was the trend of trying to get like teenagers into Shakespeare um, and the the sort of hip modernized versions of things, I'm like I actually think Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet is underrated. I I, I totally agree with its flaws, but um, I think it's a better movie than people uh, make it out to be. But then you had like the um, Ten Things I Hate About You, which was the adaptation of Taming of the Shrew, and then you know, and then you kind of got to to Ethan Hawke's Hamlet, and I've right. I've always been on the fence about it. I I tend to agree with you. I, I do think it's kind of it's a bold experiment, and I like that pe- when people experiment with Shakespeare. I like when people show that Shakespeare can be timeless. Um, that that you can tell these stories in settings all over the place, and they still they still resonate. Um, I think it's more of a failed experiment than a necessarily terrible movie, but um, I, I don't, I don't fault you. for. Yeah, and, and don't get me wrong. I, I'm not a purist by any means. I'm definitely not a purist. I, I believe that you can conceptualize Shakespeare's works and put them in a different setting in a different time in a different period and really make it work and really demonstrate the universal nature of the plays, the storylines, the characters. I think it has to have purpose. It has to have meaning. It has to have connective tissue to the text. It can't just be arbitrary or artistic um, because <laughs> yeah. I think then you go down a really weird road and you, and all you do then is make it even more difficult for the audience to absorb and connect to and relate to. And so, you know, I've done, I, I one of my favorite productions I ever produced was a, a Western version of as you like it, that I felt was, was extremely well received by our audiences and um, the actors loved being a part of it. It's a pastoral comedy. They mentioned goats and sheep and deer, and they're in the forest. And so it worked extremely well as a Western. Um, 
I did a vampire, a sort of Victorian vampire themed production of Titus Andronicus that I've produced three different times. It's been so popular and well, so well received. So I, you know, you can do some stuff. It yeah. just has to really make sense. Yeah, uh, for sure. All right. Before I let you go, I'm not, I'm not going to, I'm not going to have you pick a favorite. That's like picking a favorite child, but we'll, we'll do desert Island Shakespeare plays. Um, I think this is always pretty telling. Uh, you can pick five and the rest of them have to be burnt in a, in a, pyre somewhere you can save five shakespeare plays what are they much ado about nothing okay it's one of the most perfect plays ever written agreed uh hamlet king lear um taming of the shrew huh because it demonstrates his his mastery of comedia and his knowledge of italian comedia that he could only have had by seeing it live in italy um, and then the last one, oof. you know, I'm going to go with, I'm going to go with all's well that ends well, not because it's one of my favorite plays and not because it's one of the best plays, but because it's one of the most autobiographical plays. And if I had those five plays in hand and that's all I had to go with, if somebody else landed on that desert island, I would be able to use those five plays to explain to that person that Edward de Vere, the 17th Earl of Oxford, is the true author of those plays. That's a great answer. I like that a lot. I, I, um, I'm with you with the first three. Uh, I would take The Tempest and either Midsummer Night's Dream or Richard III. I, I, I don't know which of those two, but... Um, your your other two <laughs> answers are really really good answers. Uh, I'm gonna have to go back and 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 look at those two now actually because I've you know I'm I'm just it's been so long um, and I've always kind of especially um, all's well just uh, sort of written it off. I'm actually going to be directing Midsummer in August for our local theater company here oh, cool. in Southern Oregon and um, it's going to be like my eighth production of Midsummer so. I love the play and, and I'm happy to do it. Um, but it, it, it does sort of lose its luster when you've been involved with so many productions of it. You know what I mean? So that's probably why it's okay. on my, <laughs> my list of five. I, I, uh, I completely understand that. Um, all right. So uh, this is the time of the show where you can plug and and promote anything that you want to so uh take it away well i i hope that i hope if if your listeners are intrigued with this conversation then hopefully that they want to learn more and if they do want to learn more they can go to shakespeareoxfordfellowship.org shakespeareoxfordfellowship.org and that is the source and resource for all things shakespeare authorship question if they love podcasts and obviously they must if they're listening to this podcast right now uh and they love podcasts of this nature because your your um your theme of your podcast is unique and and really interesting i'm sure to um your listeners in a variety of different ways which is why you have the topics that you have um, then they can find my podcast as well, which is Don't Quill the Messenger. Don't Quill the Messenger. And that's available through the Dragon. And that's a, that's available through the Dragon Wagon Radio Network. So you can dragonwagonradio.com or anywhere you get your podcasts, you will find it. 
And um, the last thing I'd like to say is to invite you, John, to come be a guest on my podcast and we can continue this conversation. Only we'll switch roles and I'll be the one asking the questions and you can entertain our, our my listeners as a guest. <laughs> uh, challenge accepted. Um, Don't Quill the Messenger is a wonderful podcast. All of you who listen to this show um, should listen to it. Stephen is a wonderful host. It is uh, one of the... Uh, shows in my queue that I always look forward to seeing um, and always I'm delighted when there's a new episode Stephen thank you very very much this has been way too much fun and uh, um, good luck getting back into performing after after this long and very uncertain year I'm sure it's going to be uh, a good feeling to, uh, to be on a stage again so thank you for joining me uh, thank you for listening and we will see you next week thanks John